Okay. <clears throat> Here we go. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. On today's episode, I speak with Sam Michael, Executive Director for the China Market at Atmos Air Solutions, a leading air purification technology brand from the United States. Sam made his foray into China in 2008 working in real estate, both with Asia's largest industrial developer and one of Europe's most successful luxury outlet developers. He was then brought on board Atmos Air Solutions Shanghai office as Executive Director of Sales and Operations in 2015. We discuss air quality and pollution in China, key mistakes Western organizations make when they take on projects in China, how to manage relationships with Chinese government officials, why it's important to be on the ground in the country when doing business with China, and how Atmos Air Solutions sales funnels differ in China versus the US. And oh, fun fact, we perhaps for the first time on this podcast called The Negotiation actually talk about negotiating, talking about what it's like to negotiate deals in China. Enjoy. I know that they have an intent to continue to clean the air and they've said a lot of things and I've, I've, I have seen big improvements in the last couple of years, but they've also made indications that because of coronavirus, they will prioritize the economy a bit more. And those kinds of statements are pretty clear indicators that we're going to see more pollution. I know a lot of people in the business that are cleaning up factory exhaust, cleaning up power plants. Everything I've heard from them is that it's regulated much more strictly than it used to be. It used to be you'd go into the power plant, the inspector for the power plant would tell the power plant when they're coming, and then the power plant would turn on their filters only when the inspector was going to be there. Um, I don't think that's the case now. I've, I've been told they have real-time sensors and they're monitoring that those filters are always on, and that's happening with the smaller but also large polluters. It'd be great if it happens faster, but I think considering how large China is, it's, it's relatively rapid progress. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technology. Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. As we usually do, a little bit of an introduction of yourself, how you came to China, what you've been doing there, how long you've lived there, what cities you've lived in. Tell us everything. All right. Well, I'm, I'm originally from Idaho. I uh, went to school at a little private arts school in, in Texas called Trinity. I got convinced by the head of the language departments to do to do Chinese as my second language that I need to take. And I just kind of, I won't say I, I fell in love with it, but I wanted, I decided I wanted to go all in. I had studied Spanish in, in uh, high school and I didn't take that all the way. I'm not fluent in Spanish, but with Chinese, I wanted to uh, get really fluent. So I, I, uh, my junior year, I ended up um, in Taiwan, Tainan, studying uh, Chinese for a full year and then went back, graduated. And in 2005, got an internship um, in Shanghai. So that, that brought me to Shanghai. That gave me a really solid foundation in, uh, in Chinese. 
worked with a, a logistics real estate firm there for several years. I've been I've lived in Zhuhai, um, Taiwan, obviously Shanghai, and now since 2009 I've been in Suzhou, specifically the Suzhou Industrial Park, um, which I'm a big advocate of. I really I really like it here in Suzhou. Yeah, you were telling me. Can we actually even just stop there for a sec? Place Suzhou geographically for people who uh, who don't know the area, because you used to you you used to live in in Shanghai, yeah? Yep. Maybe just lay out those differences between the two places. Sure, sure. My you know my wife's originally from Shanghai, and she's a huge fan of Suzhou now as well. It's very hard to get Shanghaiese to like anywhere other than Shanghai, um, and it's always hard for her to admit it, but she really likes Suzhou. Um, basically, Suzhou's 70, 70 kilometers uh, northwest of uh, Shanghai, and it's not in the municipality of Shanghai, but it's at the very southern bit of Jiangsu. What we really like about it here is, is Suzhou, what they did is they, they're an old town, they're famous for, uh, they've, they've got a city moat, they've got um, portions of the wall here. Uh, they're famous for their silk and a lot of kind of the, the old parts of China. But what they did is they worked with Singapore in the 90s to develop what's called the Suzhou Industrial Park. And that was a fully planned city focused on the time around industrial. So Singapore kind of guided them on putting the infrastructure in and attracting a lot of manufacturers in terms of high-tech manufacturers. And the industrial industrial park really built up around that. And as time has gone on, some of those industries have moved west or they've moved out of the country. Uh, many are still here, the more high value added ones. Uh, but it's really developed as a really nice place to live. So it's zoned really well. The residential areas in terms of their proximity to commercial areas, in terms of their distance from the industrial, which people might not want to be close to. They've, they've done all that and all the infrastructure around it really well. I, I don't know if you recall Sim City or if you ever played that game, but um, it, you know, I think about it a lot when I think about how Suzhou was designed or where I live in Suzhou. So they maintain the really nice old places where you can go see the canal streets. But then if you want to live in a really nice area, live in nice, nicer homes, have great access to things and good uh, transportation and infrastructure, you know, I recommend the, the industrial park. You're something of a of a China expert. You've been there for a long time. You've lived in the market for basically 20 years. Now, within the world of business, what are some of the main changes you've seen? Uh, where do you think some of the trends are going in the next five to 10 years? You know, it's been it was interesting to see uh, different changes from, you know, the perspective of the different industries I've been in. So. Um, initially, we were building logistics real estate. That's where I started with. Uh, that's why I started with in China. And pre two thousand eight, our main pitch to investors, or when we were talking about our facilities, was to focus on ports, because pre two thousand eight, it was all about exporting, and and that we'd have storage at ports to make to facilitate exporting of product made in China. Post two thousand eight, where there was you know the crisis. Um, we really shifted the focus on our pitch and on where we were investing and on what we were telling investors on our domestic locations. So, and that's continued and will continue in a big way. Domestic consumption is booming, particularly around the, you know, um, any sort of e-commerce and all that requires primarily warehouses. So 
you know, that was, that was one of the first big shifts I saw in, in China. Um, I then worked for a company building shopping malls, outlets, and they were, you know, there, the, the focus and the shift that's happening, and I think will continue to happen is on experience on that. You, you used to go to a mall to buy a thing and people, that's really not the focus of, you know, um, retail real estate anymore. If I just want the thing, then I'll just buy the thing on online, but people need a place to spend their time. And so, you know, like we've kind of found during the pandemic, it, it often really sucks to sit around your house all day. And so it's nice to have these retail centers that the focus of what's the tenants there um, may less and less be about products that you're going to buy, but experiences that you're going to have with them. And and also food, F&B, you're seeing a big increase in the F&B in, in the retail, in retail spaces. Um, and then, you know, my current industry is air quality. And, and that's all about the high, you know, there's certainly a, a heightened awareness of air quality now. Um, that's continuing. I'd like it to go faster. Air quality is very important to me. And I, I still don't think people in China understand uh, its importance as much as they should. Um, but it's certainly a trend. And uh, concerns around air quality have, have accelerated in a big way due to the pandemic. So I expect that to continue in China as well. Yeah, as, as you and I both know, air quality might just be one of the biggest concerns, especially for most expats, at least in in China, and probably one of the biggest reasons, reasons that you and I know of, of why uh, expats end up leaving uh, China. I mean, it's 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 an amazing place in so many ways. But some of us, uh, and I'm thinking of even myself in particular with my son, just end up not being able to stay for medical reasons and have to leave. So I'm interested. Tell us a little bit about the macro environment of your industry with regards to air quality and the pollution in China in general. Sure. So we're you know we're focused on indoor air quality. We're not trying to clean up outdoor air quality, um, but indoor air quality in, in China is is influenced in a big way by outdoor air quality. The, you know, last year when I, I returned from six, uh, nine months in the States because I was stuck there because of COVID, um, I was really impressed with China's air quality. And I'd kind of been, I have an app. I'm always, I was monitoring the air quality all the time and it was a lot better last year. I think in many ways that might've been because a lot of factories were shut down. I don't, I haven't seen um, that, the, that kind of continue into uh, 2021 the air does seem to be getting a bit worse. They've also made signals. There's, there was an announcement, a headline I read that bothered me a little bit where they said um, they want to start taking into account climatic uh, conditions, climatic conditions um, for determining uh, air quality targets for cities. And, and the reason for that, which is understandable is the, the biggest factor in terms of any city and the air pollution that's going to, it's going to have is the wind. In which direction is the wind blowing? Is the wind blowing? Um, you can see very clearly if, if Beijing's having a really bad couple of days and it cleans up, I know it's coming to me in Suzhou. I know it's going to be here in a day or two. And, and sure enough, it, it always happens. It's, it's usually a wind blowing from the north. It's going gonna, it's gonna to blow it down. Um, recently, for whatever reason, the north's been good. The south's been good. And we haven't been great here um, in the middle of the country. I'm referring to 
the middle along the east coast and and i think it's because the weather patterns are are pushing from the south and pushing from the north and it's kind of building up here so i know that they have an intent to to continue to clean the air and they've said a lot of things and i've 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 seen big improvements in the last couple of years but they've also made indications that because of uh, coronavirus um they will prioritize the economy a bit more now. Um, and, you know, those kinds of statements are pretty clear indicators that we're going to see more pollution when they say that kind of thing. Um, so I know a lot of people in the in the business that are cleaning up, you know, factory exhaust, uh, cleaning up power plants. And everything I've heard from them is that it's regulated much more strictly than it used to be. It used to be um, you'd go into, you know, the power plant, the inspector for the power plant would tell the power plant when they're coming and then the power plant would turn on their filters only when the inspector was going to be there. Um, I don't think that's the case now. I've, I've been told they have real-time sensors and they're monitoring that those filters are always on. Um, and that's happening with the, the smaller but also large polluters uh, at factory levels. Um, you know, I, I, it'd be great if it happens faster, but I think considering how large China is, it's, it's relatively rapid progress. Yeah. Can you potentially, and, and maybe you can't, but can you potentially speak to how pollution is created in China, uh, uh, where it's coming from, the types of pollutants that uh, are harmful or not not harmful, um, and how uh, you know seasonal uh, can it be? Why is it seasonal? Just on how cities are heated, anything along those lines? Yeah, sure. I, I could talk for a few hours about that. Um, these are studies I quote to Chinese people all the time that that disregard me and want me to go away. But yeah, there's a study. People north of the Yang, of the Huaihe are live on average five and a half years less than people south of the Y River. And the what they've connected that to is that people north of the Y River, they are, um, in, if they're very rural, they're given coal. If they um, live in cities, then they have central heating, but it's all generated um, from coal-fired plants. So you, what you have is these local, very localized boilers that are exhausting all this, you know, um, smoke from the coal, uh, very close to people's homes. And that's happened throughout China for the last, uh, you know, for more than 30 years. When I read the study, which was from like 2012, it was referring to the past 30 years and in this research. Um, so it's a, a very, very substantial impact on people's longevity and quality of life. Um, that's, that's changing. They're shifting to natural gas in a big way. Um, I think some of that natural gas shift, it's frustrating because they get natural gas from Russia and from the U.S. and certainly the U.S. under China. I think they slowed down the shift in natural gas because of, because of Trump, because it was a less we were a less reliable source of natural gas. Um, that's a very important change because that type of heating is a massive source of, you know, their part, particular pollution. The then whether or not that impacts us south of the Y River is is wind. So the wind invariably will bring that pollution to us. It's just how much, um, like I mentioned, if, if if it's really bad up there and it gets good for some reason in the winter, we know it's going to be really bad in the Suzhou-Shanghai area uh, within a day. So, um, you know, that's heating's a source only in the winter. 
the uh, you know industrial uh, they talk a lot about construction here dust from construction sites i think generally dust is going to be larger particulate matters and and really the idea is that large particles our systems are designed to handle because um, a larger diameter particle, we're talking about PM 2.5 or less versus PM 2.5 or more. So 2.5 is the diameter of the particles um, in micrometers. Those, those larger particles, our systems are kind of designed, our mucus and the whole respiratory tract is designed to hopefully capture those and expel them. Smaller than that, it's really hard and it can go into your lungs and via your lungs go into your bloodstream. Um, and via your bloodstream, go into your organs. So there's studies out of, you know, the UK where they've done autopsies on like people from Manchester that died and find, you know, in their brains, in their organs, concentrations of heavy metals that that they can link to when the pollution was really bad in, in those, in that city. So um, it really does make a difference. Coal has a lot of heavy metals. China's coal tends to be more, um, it tends to have even dirtier and have more of that. Other sources are cars. I think because of the elect, you know, EV um, kind of revolution that's happening here, I think that's one of the major sources of, of uh, improvements I'm seeing on a day-to-day basis um, from what's, you know, cities and on the skyline, seeing that the air is a bit better. I think there's a, a shift there. And then the the other, the third one that I'll mention is a, is, is a contributor or fourth one is agriculture. So when farmers will often burn their straw um, and often they're burning it when it's wet, often they're burning it at night because it's illegal to burn. And so it doesn't, it's not a very complete combustion process. And so it just ends up generating tons of smoke. That can be another reason we have really bad air um, in our cities. You've worked in uh, a few different industries and verticals within your time in China as well. And so you've you've had a bit of a front seat to uh, a lot of different types of projects. What do you see as some of the key mistakes that Western organizations are making when they take on projects in China? Um, you know, I think localizing is really important. Uh, I, I've seen different approaches, the approach of, um, you know, find someone really strong locally and you know let, let them try to figure out how to execute uh is is certainly the preferred strategy not, not necessarily local oftentimes you might need someone like myself or someone like um you know a, a very americanized uh, chinese person uh, or or uh, westernized chinese person who can really translate what the business is trying to do into local market but a, a mistake you often see is that people want to just take whatever they've done abroad and and apply it directly um, in China, and that that can often be painful and expensive. Um, you know, so so figuring out how they to execute and achieve everybody's goals, but in a local way, is probably the number one the number one thing that companies need to do. Uh, the, other, the other thing I'll mention is finding good partners. Uh, I, you know, that kind of goes, feeds back into localizing. Um, but China's, you know, Guanxi is a term I'm sure has come up on your podcast in the past. Um, relationships, knowing people, it's really important here. And 
it can be very hard for any company to develop those directly themselves. So finding partners that are incentivized to help you build your business and sharing in the, uh, you know, the fruits of that business with them, I think is probably the quickest way to scale for, for any company. A lot of your work is really about managing relationships. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about what that process is like, if I can call it a process and how it's different in China. Just as an antidote in terms of our business, um, I, I, I'm not great at managing relationships. I wish I were better at it. And it is very important in China. I, I cover all of Asia for my company. Um, and like I, like I mentioned last year, I was stuck in the U.S., but our Asia sales, along with the sales for the whole company, are you know went up about seven seven hundred percent, and and so I was able to to do that from my parents' basement because uh, that's where I was stuck, um, and that was working through. But most of it, most of it there was in other countries that I work with: Singapore, uh, Japan, Australia, uh, Thailand. In China, our sales, we, we had some decent sales, but it was relatively flat. And I, I think that's because I wasn't here developing those relationships. In China, for even small deals that we wanted to make happen, it requires several meetings. Whereas in these other countries, I just did Zoom calls and Teams calls, and I was able to, to, to close the projects. Um, so I think being on the ground is really important. Uh, having, I, I think... They've, they're really starting to adopt the, the web calls, but um, still in China, face-to-face interactions are going to be very important. You know, the other thing you'll hear a lot about is, is gifts and, and, you know, showing that you're thinking about people and, and gift giving. I'm, I'm really, my wife will tell you I'm terrible at that. I, I'm not even good at giving her stuff or my kids stuff. I, 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 for various economic reasons, I don't, I don't like gifts and the concepts, the concept a lot. Um, so my preferred way with China is that we're managing, you know, to manage those partners I, talk, I referred to. So partners that are incentivized. And in, in my case of the business that I'm doing now, uh, dealers. So dealers who, um, you know, they're incentivized based on successfully selling our product. Um, they have a financial incentive. We have a financial incentive to make them successful. I like to outsource you know, whatever needs to be done in terms of uh, managing the relationships with the end user, I like to manage that with via my dealers. Um, that, you know, that allows me to really focus on um, delivering the product, good installations, technical expertise and service, and let them who are in many cases, even though I've been here a long time now, um, there's, they still may be more adept uh, at, at managing those local relationships, you know, letting them do that. That's interesting because gifting is, is a big, big part of, of China. You know, I mean, just think of the, the holidays, you know, mooncake festival or Chinese new year or something like that. It has to be hard with, uh, somebody with your values around consumption and we really don't need more stuff, uh, <laughs> type of of approach to to be able to skirt that oh, all the time. You know, you, you know whether it's um, my staff or my wife. Uh, oftentimes, they'll come to me and say, say "We got to buy something for them or for whoever this is or for whatever." You know, and and it, the the idea is that it ha- you just have to give them something. It, 
they don't need it. <laughs> and yeah. it may not, you know, for me, uh, you know, we have lots of gifts people have given me and they just sit in a corner and I don't like them. It's, it, it, it is, it feeds into this, this consumption mentality. And there's a huge economic, uh, there's papers and there's this, a great study that I read on this, but you know, there's maybe someone pays $10 for a gift, but to me, I wouldn't have paid more than five. That represents a $5 economic loss for that gift to be given, given to me. And so I, you know, I morally and financially am opposed to, to a lot of this, but you got to do it in China. That's why it's, it's good to work with local partners. How about managing relationships with government? You know, not only is, not only do I want to know what that process is like, you know, advices that you might have, give us a little bit of your thoughts on that, um, can you talk to us a little bit about managing relationships with government? You know, what I've seen with government, like, again, I'm, I'm going to sound like I'm promoting the SIP here, but but basically when I was doing retail real estate, I, I the, the place wasn't built, but I had to lease spaces. So I, I became a pitchman for the the whole SIP and this, the Sujo Industrial Park in the area. Um, you know, as a foreign investor coming in, the the role the government plays is that they're there to facilitate all of the things you need. There's lots of government requirements. Um, SIP really has a good system for kind of facilitating, you know, how, how you get in, how you uh, come into this, into this space and, and helping you with all that. Um, some governments more than others, you know, one and a story that is, that, that always stuck out on my mind in terms of thinking about government relationships is that you really, you need to be keenly aware of what they want. So if you're meeting them and you're talking to them, think about what their incentives are going to be. Um, you know, we, I hosted a government from another city in with one of our clients. Um, this was at the, the logistics real estate company, but they visit the client. They see this big, beautiful warehouse. They think it's really cool. The client takes them around, shows them how their whole, uh, you know, all the delivery processes and the technology behind it and the storage. And, and, um, you know, to me, that was all the interesting part, but the, the senior official from the other city's government just says, how much you pay in taxes each year, right? Like how, how many people do you employ? For their perspective for this entity was, you know, what I want is they give me lots of tax money and they employ a lot of people. That's their focus a hundred percent. That's their, that's their KPI. That's how they're, they're judged. Um, so, you know, going into any sort of conversation and any sort of that, that level of relationship development, uh, you kind of need to keep in mind, you know, their boss is leaning on them for something. And what's that going to be? Um, you know, in many cases, it's what they're going to gain in taxes. But in many cases, it might be something more experiential and, and how it's adding to the, the environment in this, you know, the city, whether that's a retail environment or a, um, you know, a work environment and, and then try to think of it from their point of view and assist them with that, I, I think will help you get, get further. We've talked around the particulars of what you actually do and your company. So let's zero in on that. Tell us about your company and the work that you're doing. Uh, your headquarters are in the U.S., but uh, you're in China. As you said, you you manage the company throughout China. Why is it important uh, that you are in China as well? To be successful in China, I'd, I'd want a trustworthy local partner here. Having the face-to-face -face interactions, developing the relationships, that's all 
you know, that's all a really important reason you'd want to be here. For me, our product is what we do is bipolar bipolar ionization specifically, and um, this is important, but nobody will probably remember uh, the name, but is dielectric barrier discharge or tube type bipolar ionization. And what we do is we install our systems in air ducts. So in the existing infrastructure of a building or an office or, or where, whatever sort of um, air conditioning system you have. And then that generates positive and negative oxygen ions, which which go out into the air and it's it's they're present in the air. And that's why the business really developed during COVID is that by the time virus that came out of someone went through a filter in the air conditioning system, it would already be too late. It already would have passed all the people in the space. So what our goal is to put these ions into the space and these oxygen ions um, are, have been shown to deactivate um, various microorganisms, including coronavirus. And so that's, that's the virus aspect of it. A lot of what we were doing pre-pandemic was post-renovation. So Chinese people are very worried about chemicals and chemical smells uh, from after they renovate an office, for example. So we'd be installed in uh, the air system, the ions would go out into the space and they break down the VOCs. And then we also facilitate a reduction of particles. That being said, you, you need to, in any given situation, you need a basic level of filtration. So in China, in a lot of these buildings, there's not even a, a basic level of filter. So even though they have such bad air, they have filters in the air systems that that at most are, you know, would stop a bird from flying in there. Um, so that's always very frustrating. When we're, when we're looking at any project, say we're talking to a building or an office, we evaluate the filters they have in place. Um, you know, we evaluate what our systems would be. And then we often uh, install sensors that would monitor the air quality in the space. Um, and and that the intent there is to really show people that they've got, they've got clean air. Who do you sell to? Exactly. Like, who are you? Who who's, you know, who's the customer? Who's the client? You know, who do you who do you develop the product for? And then who actually gives you the money? So our our end users are often like offices, so office tenants, occupants. Um, so I, I I won't name any, but anybody you can think that rents an office, they're a potential client because they're going to have, um, you know, their employees are going to spend eight to 10 hours a day in that office. When they're in there, you know, I, I can't, we talked about outdoor air quality in China. I can't control that. But 90% of my time is indoors for most people. And I can control that. And it's not that hard and it's not that expensive. And then that 10% of the time that you're outdoors, you know, that's not a big deal. I, you know, when I'm back, back home, um, I measure the air quality all the time. And, you know, when my mom cooks in the house, the particles will go up. So I think, everybody's exposed to particles at some point all the time. Um, my goal in, for me personally and for our clients is that we minimize the pollution that people are exposed to uh, when they're, you know, when they're indoors. Since, since the pandemic happened, more and more of our clients are real estate developers. So we go from talking about one to three floors of an office building to talking about the whole office building. Um, and that's been a source of, of business developing so fast because for those developers, they want to communicate to the market. You know, commercial real estate is already under threat. A lot of you know, work from home is working for a lot of people, um, but these buildings need to remain relevant. And the buildings that are going to remain relevant and, and occupied are going to 
using systems like ours and speaking specifically to concerns of employees, which is, you know, how do I know that it's, that this space is safe? Um, you know, one that we work with very closely is the Empire State Realty Trust. Um, they own lots of buildings in New York and the Northeast, and they install our systems and go to the market and say, hey, you know, we've got social distancing, we've got hand sanitizer stations, um, but we also have this system in the air, air conditioning that's, that's generating ions and reducing the amount of uh, infectious agents in the air. Um, and that becomes part of their marketing pitch. A lot of the effort of this podcast to disseminate learning and uh, bridge the cultural gap is through an ex- exposition of the differentiation between the two cultures. How would what you do in, let's just examine your sales funnel uh, from beginning to end, how would it differ if what you were doing was in America versus what you're doing in China? Certainly what we found you know, for our systems specifically and what we're doing is D- demand for local data. You know, I could give them, I could give them, we've been in the States a long time, so we have a lot more data out of the U.S. Uh, so I can give them 20 different studies showing great results. And then the next question will be, well, show me this from China. Show me from a client in China. As though, you know, our systems would some for some reason work in the United States, but not work in, in China. Um but honestly, that's pretty consistent across all the Asian countries. Every every country we work with wants to generate local data. Um, they want to test it in their own office. Uh, to me, there's um, certainly a lot of suspicion here, and which is kind of to be expected because it, it is air. Literally, we're selling air and, and clean air. But um, I feel like for my colleagues in the States, they're given our background there, they're able to accept it a lot more. Um because there's all these installations and all this data and it's, and it's in, in the same country that they're in. Uh, One thing I would, you know, maybe that might be useful for the listeners is um, our experience has been try, try to get, get something in any country, you know, especially China, get an install, get a flagship, get somewhere, you know, speaking of negotiation, we might get really aggressive on our terms with someone in, in exchange for extensive, you know, site visits, uh, them allowing us to uh, market their name, bring clients by, you know, they might even meet or talk to the client, becoming a great reference. Um, it's really important to have that strong local case. Um, I think I am assuming in anything you're selling, but certainly for, for me and air quality. We've ruined the earth and made land extremely valuable. And then we ruined water and made water something economically viable to sell. And now we're selling clean air uh, because we've ruined the air. And, and what's next? What are we going to be ruining to make it valuable next? Yeah, well, I, I, I don't usually put what you just said in such dire, dire terms, but you're absolutely right. I mean, the way... For, for what we're doing and the way I think about it is, is, you know, a hundred years ago, people just wanted to eat food and be full. And, and then they started, then they needed to be clean. So the food wasn't actively harming you. Um, and then now we care about, you know, vitamins and, and superfoods and all these things. So I see this kind of with food that, okay, first I need to be full. Then I need it to be clean and not hurt me. And now I want it to do 
make me healthier, right? And and with water, it's it's been a similar thing. You're right. Like like 30 years ago, when I first saw heard people were drinking bottled water, everybody I talked to, I just remember talking about how crazy it is that people pay money for water. And and now I probably at least have a bottle of water every day. Um, you know, and that's going from I'm thirsty to you know, I just need something to quench the thirst to water that's clean. And now you'll see water. Um, now they're talking about water with minerals, but there's also pH in water is a big thing. The the uh, alkalinity of the water is something that's relevant and important. And with air, honestly, I project the same sort of process, which is no one was thinking about it. I just need to breathe. I can't suffocate. And then hopefully soon people want it to be clean. Ions and oxygen ions, what we do, I see my, I see what our role not only is cleaning the air, but also sort of as an elevated pH uh, of, of the air. Um, I don't think, you know, for us and what we do, what I like about our technology is that I'm not married to places with bad outdoor air uh, because we're not going to stop people from being inside. We, we're going to be inside a lot. We need to air condition our, our, we need to be in controlled environments. And even if you're in a very clean place, you, the indoor air concentration of ions can be very low. Um, and then there's all the contaminant risks of VOCs, volatile organic compounds and, and microorganisms. So, you know, I, I'm not rooting for bad outdoor air because it might be good for my business. I'm rooting for very, very good outdoor air because either way, um, there's there's certainly a, a space for our business. Um, in terms of your specific question, what's going to be next? I don't know if if I knew I'd certainly want to figure out how to invest in it, but I, I hope it's not more stuff that we ruin and need to commoditize. This podcast is called The Negotiation. And, you know, one archetype of guest and, and one dialogue uh, of interest that we've never really done is talk about negotiating. We've we've managed to go almost 100 episodes now without ever actually talking about the topic of negotiation and negotiating, uh, especially when it comes to doing it inside China. Now, you've done a lot of contract work in China, obviously, uh, which in essence, at least not is all about negotiation, but certainly is uh, a big part of of doing deals. So let's talk a little bit about how a negotiation happens between two parties in China. What's the process like? Do deals get signed really quickly? Do you use special pens with special ink? Is it really slow? Is there something of a feeling out period? Do you have to go and do the round table dinners and, and, and drink a lot of baijiu? You know, how can you ensure that deals are structured as win-win? Uh, or is that even a goal? Can you talk to us about negotiating in China? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think what anyone will say about China, uh, you, you typically hear the importance of relationships. Um, often you might hear that, you know, once you have something on paper, that's just the beginning of the negotiation. There will continue to be negotiations. I've, I've read that in a, in a few books. Um, you know, I don't think that's wrong. I think they, I, I appreciate it about China. I, I don't, since I haven't worked in the States extensively, I'm not sure how much this is the case there, but I think it is much more so in China, the importance of developing a relationship. Um, you know, I appreciate that it's, it's kind of not only fun, but often important to get drunk with someone or at least spend some time with them to uh, get a feeling for them as an individual, um, their goals, you know, what what they're going to want, and just just knowing them, it's it's uh, much harder to uh, let someone down or cheat them or not pay them or pay them late 
if you've developed a rapport and a relationship. So I, I really enjoy and, and like, um, again, this happened a lot more pre-pandemic, but the, you know, the, the, the big dinners where you um, do a lot of that, that relationship um, development. Um, in terms of negotiations specifically, you know, for me and the approach I like to take it, the, the more points that we're negotiating on is often the better so that you, there's always an ability to exchange um, and clearly under, you know, knowing for yourself what's really important for you um, and knowing and, and then ideally having some idea of what's really important for them. Oftentimes you might be at a crossroads on a contract or, or it's, it can't close, it can't sign, but, um, you know, maybe I need this price, but they need longer terms and that might work for both of us. Or, or maybe you want to add even more sort of variables into the, the discussion, which I alluded to uh, earlier. You know, if, if price is a huge issue or terms are a huge issue, um, what are the things that are non-financial that, that don't cost them a lot, but will, will give me a lot for my business in terms of them helping me promote my business, in terms of allowing visit, visits or talking to potential clients, um, adding those, kind of putting those on the table as things that that are valuable to me um, and, 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 and we can negotiate or do exchanges for, um, to me, that's, that's important and really uh, that can be a useful approach to any negotiation. Um, ultimately, you know, in terms of signing, uh, people may or may not know in China, it's all a chop. Um, that's always confusing uh, to people in the States. A chop is a stamp that you put on a contract um, and really the, the contract's not signed until it has the chop and they don't usually even care if your signature's on it. They, they need to see that that company seal uh, pressed onto the, the contract. So um, a verb that you'll use when you're in China is, did, did they cop, chop the contract? Did they chop the PO? Um, and that's always just referring to, you know, getting that, that, that stamp to verify that the company has approved this. And it's not even directly on the, on, on one page. They'll, they'll fan it yes. a little bit so that that stamp covers multiple pages and they'll drop it right on that fanned out part of the contract and, and do it that way. Um, exactly. it's, it's, that's definitely getting, getting into the weeds and get, you know, very granular understanding of, of experience in, in China. Um, something that we've both had, but I agree that there's so much to be said about building rapport. I think that's probably one of, um, my specialties, even as a, as a podcast host. And I think I refined a lot of that skill being in China of being able to build a rapport. And you've mentioned it's not even necessarily about getting drunk. It's about letting your guard down and not being vulnerable per se, but being honest and genuine and being able to open up about something other than work. Don't bring the conversation to the table. Don't try to interject and get the conversation about the contract or something going. Relax, enjoy, be yourself. Just let there be a familiarity and a comfortableness that kind of envelops the room for a little while around a meal and some fun. And generally, the person that you're trying to get to sign a PO or a contract will invite that conversation to the table when they feel ready. And then, you know, that's your opening. Now we can start talking about it. And uh, you've you've accomplished your task of being 
um, at least not even liked, but respected enough to do business with. Uh, yeah, that's spot on. I mean, often the business piece of any conversation, it may or may not even happen at the dinner. And if it does, it's it's the last two to five percent of the conversation. You, you might just kind of be wrap up, you know, hey, I'll, I'll send that summary to you or I'll yeah, this or that or, you know, you, you'll come to our factory on X date or I'll visit the site on Y date. And, and that's it. That's all that's said about, you know, whatever business you were trying to accomplish. I mean, it's the epitome of of those sales guru books from the 90s of, you know, they're not buying their pro- your product. They're buying you. Yeah. And that is so true in, in China right now still. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it, it can make it much less efficient. So, so again, you know, that's where I, my focus has certainly shifted to, to some of the other countries where I don't need to invest that kind of time, but can still get really good results because, you know, it it can be very time consuming. It's fun and I like it. uh, But uh, I also have kids and, and I like being home, um, you know, before nine o'clock too. In a country that doesn't necessarily rely on the rule of law so much as Western countries do, that is part and parcel um, because that almost takes the place of the rule of law and everything is inside a contract. So we can rely on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, to me, I, I think I think the West could certainly do with a bit more socializing added to any negotiation or conversation. Um, I think it's it's. It's much easier to be snippy in writing or on the phone if if you haven't kind of connected with someone on some other level. And, um, you know, that's never good for any anything, especially getting business done. So I, I like uh, what China does in that respect. Well, I mean, let's be honest, sometimes it ex- it's a it's just a good excuse to go and have a good meal and drink too much. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Well, you know what? Thanks very much for for indulging me there. We got to kind of check off that that checkbox of hey, the negotiation has actually now talked about negotiating in China. So, uh, thank you for that. I, I've always wanted to get that part out of the way. It only took a hundred episodes to do so. Um, if you don't mind, give us one or two other guests that you might recommend uh, for for this podcast that you might like to listen to yourself? Um, sure. I've, I've, I've thought of three different guys I might, I might recommend. I don't know. Call them out. I don't know their, their positions. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I have a, a friend, he's in Seattle now, um, um, Mike Grigg, but he, um, he does a lot of HR training. So, you know, he's, he's does a lot of big organizational trainings with big companies and he's very strong in that area. And it's done made in China for a long time. Um, an old China hand that figured out how to move back there, but also continue his business here. Brad Fleeling, which I'm not sure that I'm saying it right. Uh, he's, he's moved to Austin. A lot of these guys are figuring out how to move back, but still do the China business. He hosts a lot mm. of, does a lot of experiential trips for People from the West. Oh yeah, going in. He'll work with universities in the West that want to send kids to uh, China to learn about the schools or business in China. As well as I think he has some other businesses that are, are pretty interesting. He's an interesting guy. And then I don't know if you've ever heard of the Lost in America podcast or Turner Sparks. He's a he set up Mr. Softy, which is an ice cream 
you know, ice cream trucks. He set it up in studio yeah. um, and, and just has really hilarious, hilarious stories from that, which he then turned into a career as a comedian. He lives in New York now. But um, for several years, he, he developed this business of Mr. Softy ice cream trucks in Sujo. And, and they're still around here. But um, I was thinking specifically of his his story and issues with the government uh, that that really he had very substantial issues with the government and his business that I think would make for a really interesting podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, Sam. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. That was that was a lot of fun. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.